0: Good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you. Tonight, we are continuing in the third week of our series on the Gospel of Mark. Um, thus far in this series, we have looked at Mark's Gospel first, in the first week, as a Gospel of trials. And in that week, we talked about how Mark's big claim in the Gospel, which is that Jesus is this Messiah of Israel, that even more than that, that Jesus is the very Son of God the Son of the God of the universe. That that claim at the beginning of Mark's Gospel is initially supported by this movement where he's kind of like calling these witnesses in the first chapter. And those witnesses include John the Baptist, and then even God himself, and then even demons that Jesus is casting out of people who are afflicted. And then in the second week of the series, which was last week, We looked at how that initial claim that Jesus is this Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, ends up kind of being cross-examined in the second chapter by the religious leaders of Jesus' day, who are these experts on the coming Messiah. They're looking for this person that Jesus says that he is. And who, while they acknowledge that Jesus is doing miraculous things, things they've never seen anybody do before, they can't understand how Jesus is willing to be sullied, to be even corrupted by the kinds of unclean behaviors and the kinds of unclean people that he keeps surrounding himself with. And so those become our first positions, our first two positions, the outset of Mark's gospel, which we're studying, which we can then reframe, I think, as a kind of question. And the question is this, is Jesus wrong about the holiness of God and even the nature of God's kingdom here on earth? Or are the religious beliefs of Jesus' own leaders and his own family wrong? That might sound like a pretty abstract or even a silly question to start with, but I would contend that it's a question that's actually still at the heart of our own experiences with the story of Jesus, even some 2,000 years later. Are we still willing to let the radical behavior of Jesus push against our own beliefs about God? Or are we willing to let Jesus even reshape those beliefs that we might have about God? Or are we so committed to the systems of religion that we're invested in, that some of us have invested our whole lives in? We're so committed to those systems that we put those systems first and then try to squeeze Jesus into them. Let's look at a, a practical example As we kind of get started tonight, In the second chapter of Mark, Jesus tells the Pharisees that, quote, "...those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." We know this verse. We talked about it last week. But do we really believe it? Do we really believe that Jesus is most interested in those of us who are still in the midst of sin, of rebellion against God, of rebellion even against Him, Or do we think, yeah, he loves those people, but he still most loves me because I pray and because I read my Bible and I go to church every week. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the kind of shepherd who is willing to leave the 99 sheep in order to go find the one. But from the perspective of those 99, this is actually good shepherding. And if you believe that you are really a Jesus follower, which is what those of us who who take on the name Christian, that's what we're saying. Do we spend our own time and invest our own passions in the same way as him? Do you spend more time with the sick or do you spend more time with the well? My hunch is that we're all more like the Pharisees than we think we are. And I would say I think that's a bigger problem than we think it is. This is our topic for tonight what's the real danger of staying inside the religious bubble that we tend to create for ourselves what's the cost of that now i've jumped right in tonight because the sermon was too long and i didn't want you to have to wait through like a million anecdotes and stories but my apologies is normally we like to start with a joke or something like that but I just diving right in. but there'll be lighter things down the road i'm sure but we're gonna keep moving so as we pick back up at the end of Mark chapter 2, there are these two stories that are back-to-back that I think begin to dig into the issue that we're discussing tonight. And in the first of those stories, Jesus and his disciples are walking through this field on the Sabbath, and his disciples begin to, to pick heads of grain to eat. And we need to start, before we get into the story, by saying this, that by Jewish law, eating the heads of grain in a neighbor's field is something that's legal to do. It's not theft. It's not illegal to do it. The question isn't whether you should be taking the heads of grain. The question is whether or not taking a head of a grain is work. Does it constitute work? Does it constitu- constitute reaping? Because that would be forbidden to do on the day of rest, on the Sabbath, and that's the day that this is happening. So in any case, the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples doing this thing, and they say this to them. They say, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, "Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So what's the the charge here by the Pharisees? Well, the charge is you're breaking the law, Right? And what's Jesus' reply to that? His reply is that the law, that the point of the law is our health and not our piety. Pharisees, then, are treating the law as a way of distinguishing, I think, between the righteous and the unrighteous. That's what they use the law to do. They distinguish between the acceptable and the unacceptable, the in versus the out. But is the God, the question for us is, is the God who Jesus is revealing to us similarly concerned with such exclusions and judgments? In the next story, Jesus is, is in a synagogue, and a man with what the author describes as a shriveled hand is there. And Mark writes that there are some in the synagogue who see a, a conflict brewing. They know Jesus, and he has, how he has this odd compulsion everywhere, he goes to heal people all the time. But they also know that once again, it's on the Sabbath, and healing constitutes a kind of work that's not to really be done on that day. One wonders, when we look at the story, if Jesus is kind of being set up here to some degree. If the man with the the shriveled hand is a plant, unclear. But in any case, here's what does happen. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asks them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they, and the they is ambiguous here, one presumes everybody. But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. There are a few things to note here in the story. First, unlike in most other stories, it's notable that this man that Jesus heals doesn't ask for it. Doesn't seem to express any interest in it beyond that Jesus makes him stand up for everybody. And then it happens. There's something there that you should probably put a little asterisk by for yourself, right? Although we aren't going to dig too deeply in it tonight. The man doesn't ask to be healed. That's note one. And then Jesus asks a question of the assembly, the same one that's there, gathered to judge him, and one that they should be able to answer, but they refuse to do so. He asks them, which is lawful, to do good or to do evil. And it's a powerful question because it gets at the heart of what those who seek to judge him are missing, right, about the the whole tensions that are surrounding the Sabbath. They aren't thinking, about the nature of the work that Jesus might do. They're only thinking about whether or not he's going to do that work. It's the work that they're looking for. It's the work that they intend to judge. But Jesus keeps pushing them to think about the nature of that work and the heart of the God that they are supposedly trying so hard to please. Did God institute Sabbath laws to stop good from being done? Or did he institute those laws to create pauses in our day-to-day lives that we might refocus on the things that are good in the first place? The people don't answer Jesus. And for the first time in Mark's Gospel, we read something interesting, right? We hear or we see Jesus get angry. Not because of the trap that's been laid for him. He gets angry because their silence reveals what the passage calls their stubborn hearts. What is that stubbornness? Why do the people that he's angry at choose rule following over heart seeking? And of course, the question that should be settling a little bit on our shoulders is why do you? Why do you choose rule following over heart seeking? And the answer is because it's easier, right? It's easier. When you're one of the 99, it's easier to define yourself by the things that you're not, by the places that you're not, than it is to define yourself by the places that you are. It turns out that walls are really easy, that rules are really easy when it comes down to it. But when you create those walls, when you create those rules, what do you lose? Who do you lose when you do that? Churches do this all the time, right? It's one of the things we're best at. Over the last few years, our church has made forgiving the burden of medical debt a priority for our ministry, and we do this through an organization called RIP Medical Medical Debt. Almost everybody in this room has, has been a part of some of these initiatives in the last few years. Today, through those initiatives, we've been a part, our rural church has been a part of forgiving more than $7 million in medical debt across our state and even beyond our state into, into neighboring states. And in response to our efforts in doing this over the last few years, something you may or may not know is that I have been a part of recruiting and answering questions for other churches all across the country who are contemplating getting involved in this work. RIP, when RIP Medical Debt, when churches reach out to them, they'll often send churches to me to ask me what it's like and to try and kind of push the, push the plan And over the last three years, I have talked to some big churches, which is always funny to me because they talk to me like I'm a big church or I'm somebody. And I feel like I am so not somebody that you should be interested in talking to. But it's funny that we're talking like whoever you are, passion or whatever. Um, In any (laughs) case, do you want to know the biggest reason, the biggest reason that I've encountered in talking to a bunch of churches, why churches don't decide to join the effort, why they don't decide to get involved in forgiving medical debt? They ask me, is it possible that some of the debt that we're forgiving came from an abortion? The second biggest reason, they ask me, is it possible that some of the debt that we're forgiving might have come from a gender reassignment surgery? Of course, the answer to those questions is yes, that's possible. But also, I think it's worth asking, what does it matter, right? The procedure has already taken place. What you're trying to do here is to help somebody climb out from under a catastrophic burden of the costs of that procedure. I remember in one of these calls one time I got um, a little more upset than I probably meant to. And I I said something I probably shouldn't have said. And I said to them, well, personally, I'm pretty glad that God forgives the things that I have done that he disagrees with too. I don't say that now to sound good. I say this as a way of getting at what we lose When we fixate, not on the sick, but on the healthy. Not on the one, but on the 99. We lose sight of the actual Jesus, who who is difficult. A Jesus who is even scandalous. And a Jesus who is deeply distressed at the stubbornness of our hearts when we choose division. After all of this stuff, we get to a section in the text next that's probably going to require you to learn a new word, which, of course, you know, I think is awesome. I love to share new words with all of you. But that word tonight is intercalation. Anybody? No? I see some nodding. Good for you. Intercalation. Intercalation refers to the insertion of a thing that doesn't match in between two things that do match. You can think of it kind of as a sandwich. And it matters in our study of the Gospel of Mark because it's also a literary technique that Mark uses frequently in his writing, more so than in any other gospel. And it becomes central to kind of understanding some of the stuff that Mark is getting at. And the first piece of that, or the first time when that happens, is right here in Mark 3. And then the first piece, we're going to talk through the sandwich. The first piece of the sandwich, the, the bottom slice of the bread here. Is found in verses 20 and 21, and it goes like this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. This is a pretty distressing bit of bread, right? To offer a bit of context here, we should note that family here is a pretty open term, and it refers to this larger constellation of Jesus' relatives. And for a reason we'll get to in a second, it does not likely refer to his mother, Mary, or to his siblings at this point. And the issue here seems to be this, that, that Jesus' ministry is creating a rift between his own circle, his relationship to his families. Business, His ability to care for his relatives and provide central things of value to him in his culture. And it's creating a rift between that circle and his new circle with his disciples and his other followers. And so given the the tenor of culture in the Near East in the first century, they have come to bring him back to his primary responsibility. That's slice of bread number one. And then we get the the filling in this passage, the, the peanut butter and the jelly of this intercalation in verses 22 through 30, and it says this. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? The kingdom is divided against itself. That kingdom cannot stand If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whosoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying to him, he has an impure spirit. So the way this sandwich works, like, there was no section break. There's no division between these moments. We have Jesus' family comes to get him, and then the whole thing about Jesus serving the devil, and that being why he can cast out demons. And then we'll get to the next slice here in a minute. But we're going to talk about that, that middle part. So what's going on Here. It would seem that those people who were silent in the synagogue in the previous passage when Jesus healed the man with the shriveled hand have found their voice suddenly. And what they have decided is this. What they've decided is that the reason that Jesus has power, that Jesus seems to ignore Sabbath rules, is because Jesus is possessed by the prince of demons. And this is their solution to the Jesus riddle, right? Right? The demons have power, and the demons don't care about God's laws. And so if he's working with the demons, all of this stuff makes sense, like how he could have power and at the same time not be pure. And so what's Jesus' response to all of this? Well, very famously, he tells them that a house divided against itself can't stand. If he's possessed by a demon, then why is he going around casting out demons, right? Well, just the fruit then. His perceived heresy actually looked like? And more challengingly, I think, if we're looking at what lies in the wake of the Pharisees' religiosity versus what lies in the wake of Jesus' alleged apostasy here, which of those things seems more likely to have actually come from God? But of course, talking about divided houses brings us to the, the top slice of the sandwich. And so, right after that passage, we get this. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent somebody in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. And he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister. And mother. So Jesus' family is back, right? And this time they brought the big guns, right? Mary and James and all the rest are here with them. And they're again asking Jesus to come home. And they want to close the circle again. And all of this stuff, all of this, this ministry stuff has gone too far. And we can safely presume, I think, that that Jesus' tensions that keep developing with the religious leaders of the synagogue are more than likely starting to trickle down and cause trouble for his family as well. The Bible never walks us through that, but I think it's a safe assumption in that cultural context that if your son is being, you know, if his death is being sought for being a heretic, that's going to cast some some negative light on your parenting, right? We need to pay attention to keep this close as we work through this passage. What Jesus is doing is costing people who did not ask for any trouble. It's not easy, the stuff that Jesus is doing. It's proving divisive, right, in his own house. But I think the, bo- the point of, of the bottom piece of bread here, I think, is this, to look at the reward. <clears throat> what seems like a division inside the house has this potential here to radically redefine the entire family. Jesus' and mother, Jesus's mother and his brothers are trying to circle the wagons by bringing Jesus home. And they're doing that presumably because they want the circle of their family closed. They want Jesus back into that network of people who care for each other. But if they could open themselves up to the heart of what Jesus is doing... Even if what he's doing feels crazy, even if what he's doing feels divisive, the reward, the specific reward of the passage is this new multitude of mothers and brothers and sisters. So if the goal of an extended family in Jesus' cultural context is this network of of partners and advocates and caretakers, this this group of people that's going to provide any individual within the group with this sense of safety— what Jesus is saying is that you're actually going to find that by opening the gate, by opening the circle, and not by closing it up again. And these two bread slices here about Jesus' own family make it easier, I think, to see what that weird middle part Is all about, that part that connects these ongoing tensions between Jesus and the synagogue, between Jesus and the way his peers seek to mediate their community's relationship with God, makes it easier to see what all of that stuff is actually about. Because the house that's being divided here isn't the house of the demons, it's the house of Israel, it's the house of God's own people. By using the law to create conformity and the appearance of righteousness inside the walls of their community. They've completely lost sight of, of what the law is for, of who God is for. They've lost sight of the fact that the goal has always been the expansion of the family. The goal has always been the healing of the sick. The goal has always been to seek the one and to bring it back to the 99. And the absolute bedrock promise in God's relationship with Israel is one that was found in the very moment that God made his first covenant with their patriarch Abraham. The the moment when Israel as a people came into being. And we read about that in the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible in chapter 22, Where God tells Abraham this, he says, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Israel exists as a nation, not like other nations. They exist as a nation in order to give the world an image of what it means to be God's people, that those other people might also come to know Israel's God. If every other nation that's ever been has always on some level tried to establish itself by creating a wall around what is it and what is not it, Israel is the one nation built on a different principle in which going from the middle, from the inside to the outside has always been the whole point to bring the outside in. And at the beginning, we ask this question, right? Is Jesus wrong about the holiness of God and even the nature of God's kingdom here on earth? Or are the religious beliefs of Jesus's own leaders and Jesus's own family wrong? And as we begin to close, we have to turn that same question on ourselves, right? Is Jesus wrong about the holiness of God and even the nature of God's kingdom here on earth? Or are we wrong? It's easy to do what I did earlier, right? It's easy to point at churches who are afraid of being associated with topics like abortion or gender reassignment. And who choose to keep their proverbial doors closed to such things. It's easy to point at them and say that they're the ones behaving like the Pharisees here. But the bread, but the bread slices in the passage from Mark 3 aren't Pharisees that are criticized, Right? The bread slices are about Jesus' own family who worry that he's overextending himself, who worry that they're losing him and that he's forgetting about them. They don't say anything in that passage about the people that Jesus is hanging out with as being unclean or beneath him. That's not what's troubling his family. But they still want, the family still wants to stick to what they know. They still want to stick to what makes them feel safe. And as we move ahead in this season as followers of Jesus, we have have to keep letting the radical inclusiveness of Jesus, even maybe the reckless inclusiveness of Jesus, challenge and convict us. We have to look in the mirror ourselves and not just point at big churches who say things we disagree with, but look at ourselves and ask ourselves, where are we spending our time? How small did you let your circle get in these last two years? Mine got pretty small. What is the real way? What is the real way to health? stepping out from where you're comfortable there are big ways and there are little ways to do that right a little way might be saying hey to a neighbor it might be trying out one of the groups that claire brought up earlier here at revolution even if you're not ready to commit to it but it might be something bigger too it might mean opening yourself up to a picture of inclusivity and grace that stretches where you're comfortable. Where are those walls for you? Where are the boundaries for you? The things that are too far, that are too much, that are too unmoved. <coughs> it might mean accepting a vision of who your brothers and sisters are that includes not just the sheep who are nearby, but include ones that seem really far away, too. It might mean Seeing as your brother and sister breaking down the walls of your family in order to seize your brother and sister, the enemy, the refugee, the political hothead on the opposite end of the spectrum, who might actually be part of your family already. It might mean seeing as your sibling, the woman choosing abortion, and also those very same churchgoers who want so badly to disassociate from. Jesus is the Messiah, if He is the Messiah, then we have to trust that what He is showing us about holiness and what He's showing us about how His Father's kingdom works is worth changing our opinions about. It's worth pushing on us and changing the way we think, even if it's hard. We have to be seekers of that kingdom not people who are overconfident that we've already found it. So how can we do that? How can we continue to be people seeking his kingdom? I think we have to do it one way or the other.